there, local citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu in Brooklyn. You know where I am. It's summertime. We're getting the thing done here in the BK. And interestingly, my guest, we have long roots in Brooklyn. He's on another coast right now. This is a kind of near and dear and special to my heart episode because local citizens would not be without this gentleman. I got a call once when, you know, when I tell you about his bio, then you'll kind of get a sense of, oh, okay, that makes sense. So he's a serial investor, was part of a a group called Podco Media. And that's where many of you who've been with us since the beginning, that's where it all started. So I get a call. Yes. Are you interested in a podcast? And I was. And voila, here we are, Local Citizens. That was about four years ago. And so I have been blessed with being able to host him on this podcast today. So let me get right to his bio. He is an investor and influencer with over 25 years experience at the intersection of innovation, diversity, and technology. A frequent speaker at events around the world, his portfolio has been featured in Time Magazine, BuzzFeed, Forbes, Bloomberg, HuffPost, Thrillist, The Wall Street Journal, Institutional Investor, Inc., Entrepreneur, GMA, Travel, Plus Leisure, Plus O, and Oprah Magazine. And I'm sure that is just to name a few. He is co founder and managing partner of Aperture Venture Capital, the U.S.'s largest fintech fund backed by multiple Fortune 500 companies. He is also co-founder of Fuel, OZ, Capital, an Opportunity Zone sponsor of innovation hubs to drive inclusive development. Previously, he was co-founder of Aegis Investment Partners, a private equity boutique specializing in growth capital for corp VC-backed companies. He is an investor or board member at numerous venture and is co-owner of the sustainable apparel brand, Karina Dresses. His non-for-profit work includes the Brookings Institute as an advisor, the Columbia Venture Community, Thai, New York, where he was founding board member in, in 1999, and the Carl Foundation, where he was named to their prestigious leadership New York program in 2000, and rhizome.org, the world's first digital art space on the web. Mr. Garnett Harriman, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Florence, for for having me. It's always funny to hear how many odd things I've done over the years. Uh, I'm happy to talk about any of these and grateful for the time with you. Grateful for all the years I've known you and watched your career blossom. Thank you. All of your investment things blossom. So (laughs) I feel like I should be interviewing you maybe. (laughs) <laughs> maybe one day, maybe one day. But today <laughs> you are on the hot seat. No, we're going to just have fun. So let's get started. I'm so glad where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Okay. Like a lot of the folks on your, your podcast, I think I have to answer that in a couple of different or multiple ways, right? So born in Trinidad and Tobago, raised in the suburbs of New York, and then, you know, what widely travel and widely invested around the world after that. Uh, and then ethnically or heritage-wise, my, my family is from India. So, you know, go figure. I'm not not really sure how to answer the first piece. I guess most of my life spent on the East Coast. That's how we know each other, and specifically New York. And then since 2019, based based in, <laughs> of all places, Orange County, based in Laguna Beach, California. Okay. So that's where you are local. Okay. <laughs> Craft. So my craft is more consistent than my location, right? So I, I, you know, somewhere in my 
late 20s, 30s, it, it occurred to me that the, the biggest myth ever foisted off on the American population was this myth of like working for a salary and then retiring with a pension, complete and utter bullshit. And so I got into the entrepreneurship game almost accidentally after that insight and have been an entrepreneur in pretty much every every engagement I've had since my late 20s, including this, including, you know, as a fund manager a couple of times over. So I, I would say that's my craft is figuring out, you know, where the where the venture is, where the business is in something that may, maybe doesn't look like a business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is a skill, a very skill intensive craft. And so how how would you say that you found yourself in a position to be able to make that your life's work? Yeah, a luck. Well, let's go back, right? Let's so you and I, you and I have had similar academic experiences, right? So I I feel like even in an era that devalues the bachelor's degree, the college degree, you know, which I think we're squarely in and probably it's getting worse over time. I have a lot of gratitude for the kind of general education that I got, general humanities, liberal arts education, including some quant and analytical piece, right? I'm sure something similar happened for you at Stanford. So I feel like that skill intensive, you know, language that you just used is very synonymous with being a generalist in, and trying to excel in many skills sets or skill verticals. And so I, I feel for me like it started at college. Uh, and then after that, I think the skills intensive part came the hard way, which is basically, you know, iteratively and empirically through a succession of work experiences. And, you know, really, honestly, a succession of failures. And so, you know, the combination of some successes and and, and a, a whole bunch of mistakes and failures along the way is really what brought that skill set to, you know, fluorescence, right? Oh, that, that was almost a pun. It was. Not quite, not quite Florence, but, you know. <laughs> it's even better, fluorescence. <laughs> <laughs> That must have been funny. All right, good. No, just your look. I just remember that look and that whole gesture. So. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe you should maybe you should do this as video. Ain't nothing changed. Ain't nothing changed. I know, right? <laughs> almost a pun. Giving myself some validation for almost a pun. So I guess life kind of offered you the skill, and then you've transformed that into something. So let's let's talk about your life and your experience and your family coming from and migrating to the U.S. and, and becoming this global global person? So look, heritage-wise, you know, Indi- Indians are like, like a, you know, from South Asia, it's like, it's a nation of small businesses. Everyone, the word, there's a word in Hindi called wala, right? Everyone is a something wala. So if you sell tobacco, you're a tobacco wala. If you are a paper, you're a paper wala, right? It's a nation of wallas. So like heritage-wise, you know, it's it sort of bred in the bone culturally on some level. And then from my immediate family, you know, I have a I have a, a very schizophrenic family background, right? My mother's generation, dirt poor, literally agrarian, you know, workers. And, you know, in previous generations were indentured servants who came over from, from South Asia. Now, my dad's, my dad's family is like, you know, he's a professor at UE, Oxford educated, his family owned like insurance businesses. And, you know, you look at those two things and you, you, you think about what they make, you know, how they, you know, what kind of perspective, what kind of worldview they make. I mean, I'm, I'm literally the, the exact middle of all of that, you know, and I have benefited from both sides of that. So 
you know, you, you take that, you transfer it to the U.S. and stir in a little bit of education and, and maybe elitism, you know, it feels like I have spent my entire career like trying to replicate some of my father's family's, you know, successes, you know, business-wise, entrepreneurially, without losing the soul of, you know, who my mother's family is, you know, down to earth, pragmatic, uh, salty, <laughs> at least in language, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, grateful for what whatever meager things they had and have. I mean, I feel like I've spent the my entire career and shaped my career to kind of be almost a complete mixture of like a perfect 50-50 mixture of those of those two things into this cocktail of a, of a career, right? So I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I think about it. It absolutely makes a lot of sense. And so when I think about where I want to go with my next question and how you've migrated from New York, I know we work together or we're in the same space, the tech space in the early 2000s. So you left there. And then we also have a connection with where you went next. And that piece is, that middle piece is really interesting, right? Because you 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 may or may not recall why I went to Denver. You know, 9-11 refugee. And, you know, my office was on the 26th floor of the Woolworth building. And so I saw Tower 2 go down that day and saw the, you know, the burning bodies and all this kind of stuff. And then did a little bit of volunteer work that day, you know, got myself covered in ashes, trying to help out in some minuscule way. And, you know, it was two or three weeks later where I realized well, what had happened, what, you know, kind of what had transpired on an emotional level, on a visceral level. Right. And that was it. I was like, well, wait, wait a second. When's when's the, when's the other shoe going to drop? I, I need to get out of here. And so that was, you know, that was my ignominious departure. <laughs> from from new york i mean it's a it's a it's a shameful it's a shameful motive but i was scared shitless i wouldn't even call it shame i would just call it you know <laughs> consciousness because you were conscious i mean you were conscious of what it was and the city changed i mean city, the city continues to change because remember that was the second one right 10 years previously it had happened and it didn't go off the way the fundamentalists had hoped and so i was like I just I was just looking at the pat the data like you know and this is like this is inevitable <laughs> it's not it's not going to be good the next time you know the trend line is not looking good sure sure and many years later many wars later we're in a whole nother place so I want to ask you then why the we kind of know the why the where so that's kind of the why the where of why you left New York but why the where California how did you come to be living and working and playing in Laguna Beach. Okay, so you know, a lot of career stuff ensued between between Denver and moving back to New York, and and I, I started investing out of my out of my own pocket. You know, I set up a little family office, and you know, we had a number of of successes, and yeah, I was just thinking about like what it, well, how it is that I can create a lifestyle that I like to li live and do these, you know, very specific rarefied things that I know how to do and and that don't map well into like corporate America for like job descriptions and stuff like this. I, you know, how do I how do I get a job doing this stuff? So, yeah, I just kept trying to work at creating as much of a platform as I could for and continuing to invest and continuing to advise and at a certain point like on the cusp of 50, you know, maybe the late 40s whatever it was, I had already been seeing someone for like, you know, some period of time and, you know, we had, or I think we were already cohabiting and like we both came to the acknowledgement that we really hated New York <laughs> at the same time, right? After 
you know, after being that person, right? When I was a kid, I would come back from my travels and like kiss the ground, like literally kiss the ground, <laughs> sure. you know, and be happy to be home and all this kind of stuff in New York. And I didn't really ever see a life outside of it. And then we just got to the point where we were like, wow, okay, all these other things are amazing, you know, and, and nothing's changed about them. Opportunity, intellectual pursuits, cultural richness, culinary richness, whatever, right? It's all the same, but the quality of life in New York at a certain point just struck me as really, really underwhelming. Everything's so hard. Grocery shopping is hard. Transportation is hard. You know, intimacy is hard, right? Intimacy on every level, community, relationship, right? All of that shit is hard in New York. It doesn't, it's, no, it's not a detraction of like New York people. New York people are just who they are, like any other, pe- any other group of people anywhere else. Good people, bad people, mediocre people, whatever, you know. But the context, the infrastructure, everything led to what I consider, I still consider an inferior quality of life, right? Four, four years later, almost five years later, I've been back fewer than five times. And I guess that's kind of a big city a big city phenomenon. I mean, I, I what, what strikes me most is that you said intimacy is difficult. And I was just scanning my mind about the last few, you know, days or weeks, just kind of walking around the city. And that strikes me the most because there's definitely post-pandemic, a lot more mental, mental illness that's on display, that a lot right? more, oh yeah, a lot more just street people with presence at all hours of the day. And so the question of, uh, it's different. And so when you ask, when you mention intimacy, it's a question I, I ask myself sometimes. It's like, well, how do I, how can I be here and, and just watch these people and not want to help? Right. Because even in Ghana, like if I see someone struggling, I'll, I'll try to do you something. Do something yeah. But I feel like here, I feel like, uh, let me, I don't know. So, so yeah, that's a really interesting point that you make. Well, that's worth, that's worth unpacking, right? That's worth unpacking. So part of the definition of a poor quality of life is to be around. It's not that, it's not that challenges or, or I'm just going to use suffering, you know, in, you know, it's not that suffering doesn't exist everywhere. It exists everywhere. But the, the frequency and the scale of it that you see in big cities. So New York is obviously, it's, you know, what it does is it beats you down. It, it erodes your emotional instincts and your, your instinct to do, to, you know, to, to, to act in the Confucian sense, right? Right. Confucius always sort of posited that people are fundamentally good. If you put like a, like, like a stressful, dangerous situation in front of the average person, the average person is going to do something, you know? And so what happens, you know, to people who live there for like three decades, like I did almost three decades, you know, it's, you get beaten down, you get beaten down. I, I knew I had turned a corner. I, you know, this is an emotional sort of awareness thing uh, that I think a lot of people might empathize with. I knew I had turned a corner when like every time I went out of the house, I was, I was stressed and like, and and more so than feeling stressed because everybody feels stressed on this big, dirty, you know, potentially violent streets and, and a subway and whatever. That's fine. I knew something was up when going back my sense, my sense of like, what is a sanctuary? There was only, there was only one sanctuary. There was only one sense of like peacefulness. That was at the house with the door closed and locked and the windows closed. And so when you start thinking about your house as a sanctuary, then you have to ask yourself, like, what is it protection against? And the minute, the minute I, you know, like my meditation went down that path, I was like, that's it. Time to go. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So then how did you pick Laguna Beach? Like, 
you know, California's a vast land. How did you land there? I didn't. And you know this about me. I, I like being around powerful women. So I'm obviously <laughs> present company included, you know, so you can't do that around powerful women and not take directions well. So I take directions well. Ah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that'll tell you who picked. <laughs> I, okay. have, I, I have, I have anything to do with the, with the picking. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> you know, timing aside, right? We landed in Laguna Beach six months before COVID hit. And I guarantee you, my life was a lot better than people. So putting that aside, you know, I, I, I don't know. My wife must be a genius because she's she picked a good spot, kind of small town-ish, kind of cosmopolitan-ish, you know, disproportionately, you know, well-off and well-educated. And, you know, I look out, I look out my window and I look at the Pacific and I look at Catalina. My dog, who we got in Manhattan, whose little little bastard was rescued from a, a puppy mill in rural Pennsylvania. So he, he was happy when he came to live with us. And then when we moved him from New York to here, he I know he I know he thinks he died and went to heaven. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure if he could pitch himself, he would. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> the beautiful thing about what you do is it's it you can do it anywhere, right? Yes. But by the way, that's a function of COVID more so than anything else, right? I mean, so in, intellectually, conceptually, that's always been true. You know this, right? You, you did a great job even long before COVID of being uh, very cosmopolitan in your in your personal life and conducting business while you were gone, right? Yeah, I, I sort of did that, but not nearly as well as you were doing it. And then COVID hit and then, you know, people were just like, all right, well, I'll send you the check, you know, <laughs> after after a video call. I'll sign on the dotted line after a video call. You know, there was a clear, there's a clear line of demarcation about like investment things, right? Pre-COVID, not a lot of people were writing checks like videographic, you know, after videographic engagement, right? You know, after COVID, totally normal. Yeah, it's the way the way it was, right? Okay, so let's let's dive into a little bit more about this venture capitalist that you are, right? Because you are not the traditional venture capitalist as as one would imagine, and you've been always focused highly on tech, and so now you've you've moved and then you start your next venture. So you've had these other ones and your, your newest venture is Aperture. So tell us about Aperture. How did it come? How did you get that focus? Tell us about it. Sure. So, and then, you know, it's going to be a story that might be underwhelming because it, it, it has a lot to do with my fun partner. So uh, let's start with the easy one. These are not your, not the, your regular VC, correct, right? So I spent my entire pre-Aperture career sort of hating on VCs and venture capital for a plethora of reasons, right? So here, here's one reason. It's this world's stupidest business model ever, right? You invest in 30 <laughs> companies and like two go big and 28 fail or, or are mediocre. I can't think of another business where that sort of like hit ratio prevails, right? That that kind of failure, that failure rate <laughs> is the norm. So that was the dot com bust. That was that was my first introduction to VC back in the back in the day in the early two thousands, and I always thought it was like intellectually the stupidest business model I've ever heard of, it, you know, on God's green earth. Not much has changed about my thoughts on that. <laughs> so and then. You know, over the years, as I met more and more venture capitalists, you know, for different ventures that we were building, I was like, man, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to say this, but, you know, I hope I hope your audience doesn't doesn't. Really. <laughs> so before I became an investor this way, because I have been investing a long time that wasn't this way, I had met a lot of VCs. Most the vast majority of VCs I met were white. And my overwhelming feeling was basically 
I've never seen such a mediocre person make so much money. <laughs> and and so I don't know how else to say that. I've never seen so many mediocre people failing upwards. <laughs> That's deep. It started with my study of the entertainment industry because I looked at these folks who were like the heads of studios and then they were like they'd be blowing and going for like three years or five years, then they'd like, you know, get ego and start to invest in shit like, you know, Heaven's Gate or like whatever, whatever, and like, you know, spend spend shitloads of money on something and then like fail and then they'd get booted out and then they'd wind up at, at some other studio, right? They run something and, and, and then, you know, over the years, you start looking at the dynastic, like the intergenerational, like, why did that guy or gal get this job? And you start looking at their backgrounds and you start to see like, you know, family, you know, someone they slept with, whatever it was, right? And and so the mediocrity and the failure of of most venture capitalists was, you know, the failure rate was the thing that stuck stuck to me the most. So I went through, you know, I, I, I think I'm in my twilight, right? I'm 50 plus, so I'm in the twilight of my career. If this is my last chapter, I'm, I'm thrilled, right? So I never was supposed to be doing this because I've been hating on it for 15 years. I mean... <laughs> So, you know, God has a sense of humor and here, here I am. So Aperture, back to the or institutional story. Aperture is the brainchild of my, my fund partner, William Crowder, one of the first black VCs in the country, right? So I've, I watched his career for years before he and I decided to work together. One of the first black VCs, he launched the Comcast Catalyst Fund for Comcast back in 2011, I think. Then he did something similar for Morgan Stanley and their Multicultural Innovation Lab. He worked for the chairwoman. He worked for Carla Harris, you know. And then he he's an advisor to Samsung and Hearst. So you're talking about a distinguished black man, right? You know, our our age, our age. He's a couple of years younger than me, and and so we have a mutual connection with someone that I think you know. You know Phil McKenzie, don't you? Mm, no, no. Okay, another Brooklynite, another podcaster, cultural anthropologist. So Phil and I have been friends for a lot of years, and Phil and William. So Phil kept telling me for almost five, six, seven years, you and William need to get together. You need to get together. So we got together at the end of 2019. He showed me the Aperture Fund thesis, and I was like, wow. You know, I've been I've been in the, in this business for since since like 2006, and this is one of the best fund theses I've seen since then. And that's that's how that started. So his 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 brainchild was basically what do folks of color and women need? Like what have all these white boys in Silicon Valley not given us? Yes, financial capital. <laughs> Obviously, that's obvious. But the the real the real issue too beyond that is relationship capital, right? And operating capital, all those breaks and all those connections that you use to make a small company get big faster and more profitably, right? So customers, techies, you know, whatever the operating resources are. And so William's genius was like putting together in in this vehicle a way to package financial capital and operating capital in the same investment transaction. That's that's the entire story of Aperture right there. Mm -hmm. I looked at that Mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow, that's really smart. So Aperture, $75 million fintech fund, definitely the largest fintech fund focused on diversity, definitely the largest fintech fund in the country, backed by multiple corporations, currently backed by Bank of America, PayPal, FIS, Truist, Progressive, Duke University, go figure. And, you know, we have almost no personal or family office type money, except we seem to be 
like very popular with other venture capitalists. So we we have the only, just about the only personal money comes from Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures, and and from his wife. Oh wow! Who is an investor in her own right, and she invested through a separate family office. Okay. Yeah. So go figure, right? You know, seed stage fund but focused on fintech, obviously, in broadly speaking, pre- you know, preference for B two B, but maybe a little B two C mixed in. Um, average check is a million, and we invest at least one more time. And then eventually, the corporations who invested in the fund will start to invest directly as a company, you know, grows up through the venture cycle, right? So that's Aperture. I mean, it's a, it's a, I, I feel like it's a highly unique proposition and it's getting more unique. One of the things that we think about at Aperture is, hey, is this a black fund? Is this a Latin fund? Is this a female fund? And the answer is no, it's not. It's, it's a fund that basically wants to invest in specific you know, themes, fintech, and then has a strong mandate for diversity, right? 50% of my portfolio right now is female founders, and 60 or 70% is, is folks of color. So, you know, the one of the things that we think about is like what, what VC is going to look like when the world is not white majority. And we're well on our way to that point, right? So we, we think of ourselves as VC for the multicultural mainstream because mainstream is changing. The definition of mainstream is changing. The definition of mass market is changing. It's no longer synonymous with Caucasian. And so that's another Aperture insight, another you know unique proposition and positioning of the Aperture Fund. It turns out to be reasonably prescient in the post-affirmative action era <laughs> where where white, where white boys want to sue people for investing in black people. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Or actually, to, to, to correct myself, where white boys want to sue black investors for saying that they're explicitly going to invest in black people. I'm like, yeah. No, I'm like, you can't get me. <laughs> right. So you have this fund you're investing and then your role beyond the, the capital, because, you know, back in the day, you know, I always understood VCs and went to a lot of their, you know, talks and, and they they played active roles in many cases around like really forming and, and shaping their investments because they had that, that, you know, interest in it. So are you still finding that that is a role that you take or something that you facilitate? That was a great question. It's a real point of honor for me personally, right? So I still, I'm still super excited about like the things that real innovators, real entrepreneurs do, you know, the creativity in particular that they express, you know, from zero to 5 million in revenue, right? Because that's where you really got, you really have to be, you know, you really have to have your whole head and your whole heart in it. And so, yes, but I guess, you know, since we started doing this as a fund, I've had to learn a little bit you know, I've had I've had to like self educate on how to be a little bit more hands off, right? I'm still reasonably hands on, but I had to learn I had to learn more about how to how to propagate or how to nurture or how to like delegate change, right? Versus versus telling someone how to do it, you know, uh, or or God forbid, doing it myself, right? And so that's 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 a big change, right? And you know, I think I think William has had a lot more experience doing that sort of thing, yeah. And then also kind of developing my own style for like having more of a Socratic dialogue with, with founders, you know, about, you know, Hey, how do you do this? Well, maybe this is better, you know, as opposed to, you know, what, what my real nature is, which is say, this sucks. Dude, you this need now. to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and here's how you, here's how you fix it. Right. And don't talk to me until you've done it. <laughs> correct. correct. I, you know, the, I think, 
being an, a former entrepreneur in my pre-aperture days, there's a little bit of a tendency to maybe be a more autocratic about the whole. And I, so, I, yeah, yeah, there's my journey from autocratic to Socratic. There you go. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Speaking speaking of journeys, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you hear. So I like to ask about local speak. And this is a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you've come to value it as a local speak. Yeah, no, this is, this is a great question. Uh, I can tell why you want to keep that one in the roster, in the repertoire uh, for, from podcast to podcast. So... Um, for me, it's 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 a fairly recent discovery, right? You know, I'm, as like you are, you know, I'm connoisseur of words. I like phrases. I collect them. You know, try to put them on the stationery and impress people when we send gifts. <laughs> <laughs> but I heard one fairly recently, like in the last couple of months, that really kind of crystallized. I had one of those crystallizing, like cl- clarity moments, right? Okay, yeah. So technology is the new frontier of the civil rights movement mm, and so that's you know, truth it really crystallizes a lot of what's happened in the last five years and and you know i can't take credit for it one of the one of the so you know that i never stopped my personal investing so in one of my personal investments they have an ecosystem that includes you know a whole bunch of folks involved with fair housing fair housing finance consumer protection for housing finance all that stuff so one of my investments is in that that ecosystem and the black female ceo of one of the leading think tanks said it so i don't i don't want to name her name because i don't have any like you know yeah no i didn't release mm-hmm. to be talking about her stuff but i'm trying to credit her as best as i can and i was just blown away you know, I will say that I, I, I'm going to take a little credit for like curating it because like when it was said to me in this group call, nobody else like re- responded to it. Right. And I was like, damn, did you all, did you all hear that? You'll really hear it. Yeah. Did you hear that? Did you really hear it? That's right. And so afterwards, the, the consensus was, yeah, that's some shit right there. And I mean, I would take it even technology and particularly AI. Yeah, 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 because that is the, you know, and just really understanding the role that innovation is going to play in really in empowering communities. Yeah. AI is the perfect storm to, to exemplify that. Right. I mean, it's it was bad before. It's bad now for folks of color and for women. You know, I mean, it would, you know, the machine vision part was bad because of tracking and, and profiling and all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the financial exclusion part was bad because of FICO and, and all this kind of stuff. So I'll just, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to one of my portfolio companies, you know, in my personal portfolio called Greenline. It's called Greenline because it's supposed to be the opposite of redlining, <laughs> right? And the, the founder is a, is a genius, obviously not me. The founder is a genius, and he he had been a proponent of you know inclusive financing for you know decade and a half, and built a technology that basically proves categorically right that people below the cutoff for Fannie Mae type mortgages right for regular mortgages you know you know there's a, there's a whole I, I don't remember the exact number but I think it's something like 14 million black brown and female borrowers excluded and and he's proved categorically that they're good credit risks, right? You know, and they have the money for the down payment. So, you know, he's using AI in a way that's very different, right? So he's using AI to combat the exclusion that comes from FICO, 
and 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 then he goes at least one or two steps further because what he's doing is saying, yeah, this person may have this score. However, if you right size the loans to this amount and right size the deposit to this amount, their likelihood of payback is like ninety percent. So what what the fuck? That's you know, in a nutshell, in layman speak, that's what he does. That it's groundbreaking. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, by the way, you should talk to this guy support. He's he's something. He's a the son of a Bangladeshi math professor who then like self-educated and became math prodigy on his own and an AI early AI practitioner going all the way back to like 2006 or something and uh, has you know has lived you know because they were immigrants lived in depressed neighborhoods right when he was growing up and you know is basketball basketball aficionado <laughs> wanted he you know wanted to play wanted to play basketball professionally and then. Never, 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 you know, that's a long shot, so it's okay. He he studied hard. As a mathematician, did the you know did the did the did the statistics on that happening, and then he decided he better have a fallback. Right. (laughs) But he's been at the forefront of AI and like inclusion for you know decade and a half, right? And he's building this thing that I think, with a little luck going to be a juggernaut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that is the the momentum that we're we're moving towards. And so that kind of brings me to fuel because that seems like another huge game changer and particularly because it has the opportunity zones piece and the real estate piece. Real estate's always something that I'm always keen to look at. So tell us about tell us about fuel. Yeah, so fuel, you know, fuel was I I had an, a hand in in co-founding it and then I you know, in, in the spirit of you know, honesty and transparency, then had to like pull back from because of Aperture. Because Fuel was predated Aperture by only about a year or so. And so in that year, year and a half, you know, these investment partners that I have um, went first to Atlanta, went first to Kansas City, then to Atlanta, and then basically were making the case with local universities, local politicians, that whatever was happening in, whatever development was happening in the OZ in their respective cities, was never going to be as successful as, as far as inclusive development and wealth transfer to folks of color and to women unless there was like an innovation hub part of the real estate development. And so it's not just about fixing this building, it's about fixing this startup ecosystem or, or building this startup ecosystem to go with the real estate development, with the gentrification. Yep. So, so if any of this sounds familiar, it should, because it, it was basically your day job, you know, at, at, I don't remember if you were at iTech. You were not at iTech, you, you, EDC. And so, so why, why people wanted to hear what I had to say was that I was just copying what Florence told me like 10, 15 years ago, <laughs> right? So I have to get, you know, you have to take a, you have to take a bow for, you know, all I did was curate it, right? And, and, and sort of marry it to that other part of my life, which was, but this is something New York was doing, you know, I mean, shockingly, right, early in the game, post post 9-11, right, Syst- systematically, right, downtown. Pre, pre-9-11, pre-9-11. Pre-9-11, that's right, that's right, because we did, you, you did Dumbo, right, didn't you? Dumbo was pre-9-11. Dumbo, Long Island City, Industry City, all of that was... You would laugh, but I use all that stuff. I use all of those examples. Dumbo is the one that was closest to me, right, because I lived on, on the edge of it, right? But so I use all those examples, you know, when we were putting together our materials and then talking to different. So all those things got to a certain level of fruition. And then, you know, I had to leave. I had to start focusing in on Aperture. So 
you know, to some extent, fuel is still an ongoing endeavor with, you know, the partners that are there, but I'm not super, I'm not super active in it. And, you know, they haven't, they haven't finished like a full project yet in either city. They're still in discussions. And so that's, yeah. I mean, it's kind of the nature of the beast in that kind of space, right? When you have to deal with public-private partnerships to kind of get things working. It's tough. You know, there was in the middle, we, we were awarded a major contract in Kansas City. And then the mayor who signed it, you know, and the city attorney who signed it both left office. And then the new mayor came in. And yeah, just there it is. First ignored it and then rejected it and then fo- started the whole process over again. Over. Yeah. You know, we did. We, we won the RFP and all this kind of stuff. And then he reset the clock. And, you know, right around that that time, Aperture was starting its fundraising. And I, I had to, like, be present for that. So it is what it is. Yeah. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking because it's not just a U.S. thing. It's a global thing. It's happened to me time and time over. And so I want to ask you about mindset. What is your favorite or most interesting mindset hack? One that you practice, one that you imagine, one that you know of? It's all around my meditation practice. You know, you and I talked about it. I, I, don't, I don't you know remember the exact years that you and I were like spending time together and stuff. But, you know, I, ha- I had my meditation practice now for, you know, the last 20 years almost, I think. Started in my late 30s, you know, early 40s, you know, mid 30s. I don't know. It started in Denver, by the way. Ah, right. Yes, yes, yes. I remember that because you had the whole space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And it, you know, it, it was part of the he- part of the healing process for post 9-11, whatever. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to call it PTSD because there are, you know, the wounded warriors and, you know, soldiers and all this kind of stuff out there who have a much bigger claim on that language, but you know, it was, it was, yeah, I mean, it's trauma, definitely trauma. And so I got to a certain, certain level of like therapy after a year and a half, two years. And my therapist said, Hey, well, how do you feel? I was like, terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but you, you know, you've kind of run the course of, of the therapy. So usually if this happens, what, what, what we do is we think about this as a juncture, as a, as a fork in the road, down one path is medication <laughs> and down the other path, you know, she was, she was saying essentially that they'd seen a lot of, you know, good results with meditation. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> and so I am, I am uh, very fearful of all Western medicine and pills in particular. So I don't even take aspirin. And it's, I've always been like that because I think, you know, I was a pretty sickly kid growing up. So I had a shitload of medicine stuff down my gullet when I was growing up. And as an adult, just stopped, stopped taking them altogether, you know. So I, I chose meditation and that was, you know, like like Robert Frost says, it made all the difference. Yeah, yeah. So that is it. That is a mindset hack. So that is a huge mindset. And, and so the, it's a multivalent mindset. So on one valence, it's practice and it's sort of discipline consistency, workflow, life flow, reorganization, right? Because you have to make sure that there's room for it. You know, it, on, the, on the practice level, I would also be thinking about things like the types of meditation that you can do. Like pe- people don't realize that you, you, you can and should be meditating while you're in movement, not just, you know, moving meditation is, a, is a, especially for folks like us, you know, runners, right? I mean, I started meditating a lot when I was running, you know, in my 40s and stuff like this and it's a really very useful thing to do really helped a lot with my time actually you know so before before covid i got my mile time down to 6 30 6 27 
for for an old man, I was like, I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> it's not bad. I was, yeah, I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> you know. Okay. So, and then the other valences that I think it operates on are things that are talked about a lot. So for me, there's almost a dialectic relationship between these two things. One is gratitude, obviously, right? Huge. And then the other is acceptance, right? And so if you can get straight with those two things and how they work in your life and in your heart, you're going to go far no matter what happens. Uh, so gratitude is what it is. Acceptance is just, I think it's hard for people to really understand what that means, right? So, you know, do a mini disquisition on acceptance right now. But what <laughs> it, it, acceptance is really just, I mean, it operates when you're sad, right? You have to accept that you're sad, right? I mean, and, you know, gratitude helps drag you away from that by basically, you know, reminding you of all the reasons you have not to be sad, you know? And so acceptance is is not resignation or it's not giving up and stuff like this, right? Acceptance is basically letting these things, you know, come, letting them come into your life or, you know, wash over you and, and knowing, you know, having enough sort of self-awareness and understanding to, to know that what you feel in that moment or what you're experiencing in that moment is not all you are or will be. Once you once you get that dialectic, you're going to cut through life like like an icebreaker. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that. And even just breaking it down, because a lot of my guests say their hack is meditation, but that you have given us a dis. What did you call it? A dis a disquisition. <laughs> disquisition. <laughs> well, that, that's a Stanford word right there, man. And I I'm know. Not, I'm, I'm not talking about that cheesy president that just got the boot either. <laughs> That's that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a Stanford word right there. That's, a that's not not even a Columbia word. <laughs> oh my gosh! Right, 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 right. Okay, so I want to turn the table just slightly because I love talking about the business side, but we want to know a little bit more about the Garnett that's not investing and not doing, because you have this other self. I'm mean, just looking at your your bookcase and I know that there's just all this other you. So tell us more about who Garnett is when he's not working. And I like to ask a question, Do you are you a reader, a watcher, or you're a listener? And what are some of your reads, watches, or listens, your favorite reads, watches, or listens? You, you know how when we used to go to dinner parties and stuff in New York, you would, you know, not you, one, one would look at people's books. Yes. And you, you, you know, that's yeah. like a, that's like a, it, it's trite, right? But it's like, you know. I mean, it's, it tells you something a lot, actually. But, but you, you can learn a lot about people, right? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, so, okay. So in the spirit of salacious share, <laughs> <laughs> here, here's, here's, here's something, right? So, you, sure. you know, and this is a relatively new practice <laughs> or, or like facet. <laughs> so I, okay. And I tell it to people when I want to get, when I want to get a kick, kick out of the, the you know, when I get a, a rise out of them or whatever the phrase is. Right? So I think about death every day and, you know, I just, I usually, I just wait for like the pregnant pause to get like, you know, to give birth. right <laughs> And, and so what I mean by that is, you know, as I've gotten a little bit more old, a little bit older, a little bit more settled and all this kind of thing, a little bit more comfortable with the things that I used to always think like made me too different to be around people. I don't know what, but I realize that it, it's less about death really. Right. You know, I say it like sometimes in the same breath that I talk about, like, Hey, my mom passed in 2020, you know, my father-in-law passed six, eight days later, you know, then my, then my wife's stepfather passed. 
It was like, it was a tough year, 2020, right? So I usually say it in that context that people get all like serious. <laughs> no, but it means, it means mostly I think about what a good life is like every day, right? I mean, it, and, and if you don't have that thought every day and do something about it every day, you're probably not living your best life. You know, I'm, I'm almost certain I'm living my best life because I do that. So could you say, just think you just contemplate your mortality? Or specifically death in general? No. Like what what it is you want people to remember. It's not about mortality. Who gives a shit? That's that's a fa that's a foregone conclusion, right? I mean so what is there's a great book, right? The The Remains of the Day. What what's left? What's left after you sh- you slough off the mortal coil? What's left? That's what you should be thinking about every day. So it it, it is sort of thinking about death, right? But it's really not. It's about what's left, you know? What what remains? What what persists? Right? I you know I I have I have low hopes for myself, but I, and, but I'm trying to play catch up, you know, with regard to doing right by as many people as possible and doing right by the world, and you know maybe not being so bitter against the the shit that you know I don't like and the people I don't like. <laughs> you, you know you know what I'm saying? I'm like I do. So yeah, I think I think mindset wise. Yeah, think about death because you know uh, it'll it'll lead you organically to think about life. And I, I know that you have to get moving, so I won't keep you too much longer. But I think that's a great final thought. But do you want to leave us with any other last thoughts? Uh, I don't know that I have any more. I think I'm gonna shot my wad. <laughs> it was received, though. It was well received. <gasps> I gave you, I gave you two or three good quotes. <laughs> you did, you did. You gave us some good stuff. So. Yeah, my exhortation is to be open-hearted and open-minded. That's it. Everything else will fall into place. And that's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Garnett. Thank you for having me. All right, folks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be sure to like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, particularly if you listen on Apple, Spotify, Google... Amazon. It really helps other people find great content on the internet. So until next time, bye for now.